beginning. Um, so you, everyone finished? Because you had a quiz, right? <laughs> Good. How'd you do? What did you think of the Aeneid in the end? Yeah. Um, no, that was from Otter. Never mind. What? <laughs> the, the female warrior. I had another one. That's okay. <laughs> cool. All right, good. Sort of works. I guess it works. Yeah. She, she was aware. She went with the, she was with Jason on the yeah, yeah. ship and all. Okay. And she, and she played, she was the one who shot the boar. Okay. <laughs> was she the one who She's a huntress. Was in the foot race? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. If, if you didn't beat her, you died. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'll... <laughs> that plus low, <laughs> we'll we'll work it out. Um, okay, so you finish the Aeneid. Yes. Are we gonna answer it on this? Go. Uh, I was really interested in the whole idea of like Dido and Ulysses' love. Uh huh. First of all, it was like a secondary love, and second of all, like the Cassius love like really contributed to like the love between the two. Okay, say more. Um. Well, like, Plato's idea of love is something that uh, it is better to love than to be loved, and to love means wanting the best for the other person. And this sort of love is, like, not platonic love. It's more, like, lasting, and the sort of love where you can invent to be there next to you. And I think that, like, for Plato, it's, like, the lowest form of love. Well, okay, so are you talking about Dido or Aeneas or both? I was thinking more specifically of Dido's feelings towards Aeneas, because it doesn't really talk much about how he feels towards her, and it's, like, less dramatic. Um, I haven't thought about his love towards her. I think it's, I don't know, maybe just because he's non-hysteric, it seems more noble. I haven't really thought it through yet. Okay, well, you know, it's worth, um, the, the, the reason Hamlet, um, talks about Aeneas's tale to Dido is that what everyone um, ultimately remembers about the Aeneid, um, the last thing they remember, as you're lying on your deathbed and your memory starts going, and the Aeneid slowly falls away from you, you will see this in 60 years or so. Um, what you will find is the last part of the Aeneas to remain with you is, is uh, the Aeneid to remain with you is Aeneas and Dido. Um, and that's, that's really um, the, the part of the Aeneid um, that matters most to moderns. Um, it's a little bit something to keep in mind um, in, when you read um, Dante, which you're going to start doing, as you know, uh, for Friday. Um, the uh, one way to get to that question of um, uh, how we feel about um, Aeneas and Dido um, is the way that Sahar is, is proposing, which is to go back to Plato. Um, but let's let's ask the more general question about Plato. Or do you want to say? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was say go ahead. Right. Oh, well, I was just like going into this. Um, I had sort of like a different view on that because last year the um, music department put on that on uh-huh. and um, it was just um, I didn't. I think the the opera really doesn't capture Dido's fury and her anger. No. Like, she's just sad. Yeah. All the time and going into this, that's what I thought is going to be like, and it's really her anger that, that stands out. And, and I was like surprised, but that was something that was just like completely left out. Yeah, well, Aeneas has an amazing way of making women angry. Um, and that's something that, you know, there's part of, part of structurally what's so interesting about the Aeneid 
um, is not only its relation to Homer and Virgil redoing Homeric scenes um, and doing them differently, um, but also the way the first half and the second half are, are interacting with each other. That is to say that if, um, if the first half is, as we said, um, Virgil's Odyssey and the second half is Virgil's Iliad, um, they're still balanced against each other. So that Dido's madness and um, fury and suicide, um, how does that appear in the second half? Where does, who, how does that get picked up? Yeah. The queen she of want her daughter to marry the daughter being <coughs> named Latinus. Okay, the the Latinus. king is Latinus. Um, Latinus, where we get the word Latin. Latin, and why do we call it Latin and not Trojan? Yeah, that was the deal that Juno made with Jove, with Jupiter, um, which is essentially um, it's actually an interesting insight into um, cultural um, uh, melding, which is that the conqueror and the conquered, um, actually their cultures merge. It's not that you have, um, it's very rare that you simply have a victorious culture um, that destroys another culture. Usually what conquering does um, is it also absorbs a whole lot of the culture of the conquered um, culture, conquered people. Um, and that's part of what Virgil, um, who is seeing this happen in Rome, seeing the Roman Empire expand, and as it expands, um, change. Um, that's part of the insight that he sees into, um, or that he puts into um, the deal made by which these wouldn't be called Trojans anymore, but Latins. Uh, okay, so, and the daughter's name? Lavinia. Um, you should remember this when you read Paradise Lost because one of the things that Milton will dismiss is... Yes. Um, among the things that epics are about, Milton summarizes the Aeneid as the rage of Turnus of Levi for Lavinia disespoused. Um, and that's Milton kind of saying, you know, Turnus is sort of Achilles in the Aeneid. Um, Turnus is the one who's been cheated. That is, we go back at the very end of the Aeneid, it's almost as though we go back to the beginning of the Iliad. Turnus has been promised Lavinia, and then she's taken away, just as Achilles has been given Briseis, and then she's taken away. Um, so that's Milton's view. Milton is, um, admires Turnus a great deal. Everyone admires Turnus. Turnus is... Um, the death of Turnus is a tragedy, and we should talk about the very end of the Aeneid as well. Um, okay, and um, so Latinus is um, all for Aeneas, but Amada, who is his wife, um, is on whose side? Turnus's. And she is brought into rage and fury. Um, against her husband and against Aeneas, um, the result being war. war. Um, okay, do people remember who's who? More or less. Okay. Um, all right. Um, so that, at any rate, let's just go back to the to the Dido um, connection. So there again, what you have um, is a queen who has ideas about the future 
and those ideas are completely messed up by Aeneas, and the result finally, in one case it's love, in the other case it's, it's hate. Um, the first case of love, Dido's love for Aeneas, turns into hate. Um, the second case is hatred pure and simple. Um, and in both cases, what do the women eventually do? They eventually kill themselves in, in grief and fury at, at what Aeneas has done to their cultures, to their lives, to um, their countries, to um, the way they live. Um, and those two things are, are balanced. They're supposed to be balanced. You're supposed to feel um, the balance between those two stories. Um, the story of Dido is very much a story of love. The, the question, one thing um, more generally to think about is the presence of platonic ideas in the Aeneid. Um, so, um, and that's what Sahar um, uh, alerted us to from the start. Yeah? I'm going to write my favorite topic on this. Okay. So, so I should shut up. About love or about um, Plato? Uh, about Plato's idea of love and how it's reflected in the need and possibly how it reflects on the Iliad and the Odyssey Okay. Um, another place to see the see platonic ideas is in the underworld. That is, what Anchises says about what happens after you die. Um, owes a lot to Plato, both to some of the Plato that we've read, um, especially um, the allegory of the cave, um, as well as to some Plato that we haven't read, um, also from the Republic, especially the very end of the Republic. Um, but the idea of reincarnation, the idea of the souls waiting um, to be reborn, the idea that at rebirth um, they forget what they have known before, um, all of that is Plato. So there's um, an interesting way that we have Plato quoting Homer, and then in order to make his points, um, sometimes very anti-Homeric points, and then Virgil um, finding a way to reconcile Plato and Homer together um, so that he gives a version of reality of what happens after the world of appearances which uh, looks back to both Homer and to Plato um, and that's something to consider okay Dido and Aeneas what I wanted to read you um, so who does Dido um, actually just, just to be on the same page on this um, Aeneas goes to the underworld what did you think by the way of of Aeneas's just generally, Aeneas's descent into the underworld compared to Odysseus's. Okay, good. Yeah. I don't know, I felt like he had no house. And I also felt like, you know, he definitely died a lot of it seems like a much easier descent. Well, it's an easy descent. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. And his father, just do the home, doing the Homeric parallels, who does his father parallel in Homer? Thank you. 
Okay, Tiresias as a prophet and and his mother as a parent. That is, his father, in a way, combines both those features of Odysseus's descent into into hell. Um, who does Palinurus? Um, Elpinor. Yeah. So everyone saw that connection between Palinurus and Elpinor. Who's Palinurus? You're looking. Yeah, who falls who who's, who falls asleep and falls into the water, and then what does um, he uh, require Aeneas to do? Bury him, just like Elpinor. Um, Odysseus has to go back and bury Elpinor. Um, Palinurus is the great steersman, um, and Virgil has him. Unlike Homer, Virgil makes him a, a marked character before. Um, he dies. In Homer, it's the first, basically, not quite, but basically the first we hear about Elpinor is, oh, he died. Um, he got drunk, he fell off the roof, he died. And, yeah. and also his death is more noble because, like, he doesn't sacrifice good enough to be quiet. Right, exactly. And Virgil, you know, you can find him, too, because he's like, oh, he came back, he was on the beach, where he did Yeah, okay, good. Part of the reason, yeah. Yes, Adam. Yeah, all right, good, yeah. Actually, in general, it seems like Aeneas' journey, it, it, it seems like Odysseus' journey is mostly hindered by by the gods, except for except for maybe um, Athena, whereas, whereas Aeneas' is, like, pushed forward, Aeneas is kind of pushed forward constantly, like, even a lot more than he wants to be. Mm -hmm. he, he keeps wanting to settle down and stay somewhere, and the gods are like, nope, you gotta keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how insightful this is, but now I'm just kind of stoked. Like, I don't think it was going to go as far as it goes, but I think I wasn't struck by the smoothness of it as much as how, for Odysseus, the whole thing was very sparse and more, felt more brief in a sense, because, like, our images of Greeks are, you know, pillars and, like, spears, whereas Romans are all, like, richly embroidered and, like, you know, leading into the fantasy. And so for Odysseus, he just has to dig a hole, slaughter animals, and like wham, bam, you're there. And it's not that he's exploring this grand city, it's just like, oh, I'm in the land of the dead, okay, I'm no longer there anymore. Uh, whereas for Aeneas, he has to get a golden branch, and like, he like sees this like city of, uh, not pandemonium, whatever it's called, with the like lake of fire and adamantine towers and not even the gods can batter down. Mm -hmm. it, it just seems like, again, just catering for more Roman style, but I'm sure that, I don't know, it seems too safe for what we can say. All right, enough qualifications and done. <laughs> okay, yeah, Emily. Um, something that just kind of bothered me Uh -huh. Other times they do, and I just don't understand. Like, 
<laughs> okay, so there you're asking a, a, a tough question and one that's going to be very major in Paradise Lost. Um, there, one way to answer that question um, with respect to Virgil, um, it's the, 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 all right, the, the basic answer is that it depends who the writer is, um, and everyone has a different view of fate. Um, in Virgil's view, the gods are probably somewhat more metaphorical than they are in Homer. Um, that is to say, in Homer, the gods are, um, are characters. Um, they're not necessarily characters that Homer believes in. Um, part of the point of Homer is that for the gods, this is all a game, but for humans, this is all really serious. Um, the gods in Homer become deeper when they become more metaphorical, um, as when we have, for example, Zeus as the god of guests rather than Zeus as the kind of Ovidian god who just likes having sex with anything that moves. Um, the, um, so, so there's a different, there's, there's a significant difference there. Um, in Virgil, you have Jove as, in a way, the one serious god. Um, Aphrodite is um, Aeneas's mother, and it matters that his mother should be love, but that love um, should um, want Aeneas to found a city rather than Aeneas, rather than to fall into the trap that Juno sets, which is to have Aeneas stay in Carthage as Dido's husband or as her con as her consort. Um, but, you know, it's sort of interesting, for example, that Aphrodite shows practically no interest in um, Anchises. That is, that Anchises is, is Aeneas's father. They've had sex. Um, they, uh, that, that's how Aeneas was born. Aphrodite's interest is in Aeneas and not in, um, in his father, even though they were a couple. Um, and that's because there's a sense in which um, although Virgil will treat the gods and goddesses as characters, um, really they're, um, they only become characters when they interfere. The character who is most godlike, or most you know most most like our idea of God, um, is is Jupiter, and what that god is like um, is to some extent like a biblical like the biblical God, which is someone who who both asserts what will be and describes what will be as inevitable. Um, and sometimes that will take the form of prophecy, and sometimes it will take the form of command. But for God, prophecy and command are the same thing. Um, the way Milton will put it um, when he has God speak in Paradise Lost is God says at one point, what I will is fate. So that will and fate are not generally, we think, and this is a very, very um, vexed issue in Milton's time, but generally the great debate is, do we have free will or are things predetermined? Um, and those two things seem to be in opposition to each other. Um, free will means that the future can change. I mean, that's what Terminator is about, right? Um, free will means that the future can change. Um, predetermination means that it can't. Uh, stories like the story of Oedipus, where the Delphic Oracle 
um, makes a prediction and people try to circumvent that prediction and in trying to circumvent it they actually make it come true um, stories like that are about how fate overrules will um, how whatever you will fate will um, fate will be victorious a modern version of that is a famous story um, uh, by W. Somerset Maugham or the character in a Maugham play actually it's death um, is the character who tells the story um, but the story is known as The Appointment in Samara. Is this a story that rings a bell for people? Um, John O'Hara uses it as an epigraph to his book called Appointment in Samara. Um, so I won't be able to get it exactly right, but the story is uh, essentially um, Death Speaks and tells the following story that um, a, a man sent his servant to the marketplace to buy him provisions, um, but the servant came running back to the man and said to him, I was in the marketplace in Baghdad, and um, someone jostled me, and I got angry, but I looked, and I saw that it was death. Um, and now, therefore, Master, I have come running back to you, and I beg you to give me provisions, and I will ride to Samara um, where, um, and away from Baghdad, and there death will not find me. And so the master um, says to the man, um, says to his servant, um, very well, here are provisions, and go take yourself to Samara. And the servant um, went away to Samara, far from Baghdad. And um, the master, um, angered by this, went to the marketplace in Baghdad where he found me. Remember, this is death telling the story. And said to me, why did you frighten my servant? Why did you threaten him in the marketplace when he was doing my bidding? And I replied, um, why did you make that gesture of, of threat to him? And I replied, that wasn't a threatening gesture. It was a gesture of surprise because I did not expect to see him in Baghdad since I knew that I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Um, <laughs> so that's um, a good story. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, the attempt to escape fate is what you're fated to do. Um, that's one way to try and um, reconcile those two things. And Milton will do that as well. Um, for Virgil, um, fate is, um, is inflexible, but it's also imperial. That is, it's not just what will happen. Um, you could see fate as um, the way modern physics does, as um, just look at the universe with time as another dimension, and it's a static universe, and what is, is. Um, um, everything is what it is, including the future. The future is what it is, as well as the present, as well as the past. Um, or you can see fate as um, a determination by some conscious agency. In Greek mythology, that agency is usually described as the three fates who simply decide what will happen. In Virgil, it's more that Jove decides what will happen. But in modern in modern English, probably the best way to finesse it, or at least, or maybe the best way to get insight into this, is to think of um, what a jury does when it determines guilt or innocence. So the idea, if a jury finds someone guilty, the word find there means both discovers the guilt of the defendant, but also makes it the case that the defendant is now guilty. The defendant is innocent until the jury finds them guilty, has the presumption of innocence until the jury finds them guilty. So in modern English, words like find or determine 
are words which mean both, both simply saying what is. I find that um, it's actually kind of a nice day outside, but also making it be the case. Um, I find you guilty, and I find that you will now have to go to jail for, for 30 days. Um, we can determine that it's sunny outside, or we can determine that you will serve a sentence of three years. Um, so we have that, that give, um, or we could call it that overlapping concept between will and fate, even in modern English. If you're a poet, and if you're a poet who's writing about the founding of Rome, um, the question of will and fate, of imperial will, and whether that is fated to happen or not, um, that's going to be something you're going to really want to use all the leeway you have. Uh, Samantha? Um, well, I was thinking of this saying, talking about fate, and usually when you read about it, it's, it's not decided by the humans, and Dido actually changes their fate, and it says how it wasn't her time, but they cut the last string because they saw her. Um, nice. Yeah, because nice. the blood was coming out and whatever, and they took pity on her and killed her for her. Yes. Which is bizarre. It's not the first that happened in the literature. <laughs> yeah, um, but in a way, if it doesn't matter, then it's okay. But you're right. That's a that's a really nice point. Yeah. Also, um, there, there is a question of, like, I mean, you always being told, oh, the faith is to go and, you know, establish this, you know, found this empire. It's like, go. And he's like, oh, I have to go. I have to go do this. It's like you could also say, I'm not going to go. Yeah. And then, and the same thing with like Ulysses is like, he's all about, um, I'm not going to fight because um, uh, I've been told and now I have to watch. I can go home and, you know, live my life. Or yeah. So there, there is a sense of faith, but like, it's for choice in me. Because mm -hmm. it's not, it's, it's not really like, with like Ulysses, you can say it was fate because, you know, things drove me to it, but with me, yeah, so you're absolutely right, and that really brings up the question, which is a really deep question in Virgil, and a really hard one to answer. It's not, so it used to be that what people would say is, look, what, and I'll just say this because it's, there's going to be the same issue to some extent in Dante, and very much so in Paradise Lost. So in one huge difference between Homer and Ovid, on the one hand, Homer and Ovid share are, are alike in this, and then Virgil, on the uh, Virgil, Milton, and Dante on the other hand, and Plato falls somewhere in the middle. Plato might might be a harder case, but one huge difference um, between between Homer and Ovid on one side, and Plato, Virgil, and uh, excuse me, and, and Virgil, Dante, and Milton on the other, is that. Homer really has very little aloha for the gods, as we Hawaiians say. Um, the gods for him are more trivial than human beings. Um, at their best, they come up to human grandeur. But the greatest figures in the universe for Homer are humans, not gods. Um, the gods for Homer are yet more crap we have to deal with. Um, and we do have to deal with them, but we are mortal, and they aren't. And being mortal is being in a far is is being in a far deeper kind of existence than being immortal. So the gods are are um, you know at their best they're not silly in Homer, but only at their best. 
Um, the gods are not serious. They don't know what serious, what it means for existence to be serious. Yeah. Yes. One right. Get it together, but now that you said that, I guess Homer intended Neptune's rage um, as an allegiance, and I guess just reading through Virgil's lens, we should look at it. I read it as something that's justified because well, they're always right. So, so no, it's not. It's the God who's always right, or who's essentially always right in Virgil is is Jupiter. Um, that is, what you won't find are the kinds of tricks and, oh, that joke, you know, that you get in Ovid and, and in um, Homer, which is, oh, that Jove, he's always chasing skirts or, or whatever the Greek equivalent or Roman equivalent of skirts are. Um, and, you know, look how he's, look how he's, how he's fooling Juno and look how um, pissed she is and now look how henpecked he is. Um, you know, the sort of, the comedy version of the gods. Um, Juno is, to some extent, comic and to some extent not in um, the Aeneid. That is, to the extent that she is the patroness of Carthage, um, she's serious. But to the extent that that issues in rage against um, poor Aeneas and, you know, all this stuff with, the, with Aeolus and um, her bickering with um, Neptune and so forth. All of that is, is, is a little bit comic relief. Um, but what I think you could say about Juno is that she represents a kind of irrational element in divinity. That is that you, de you don't know when she's going to be serious and when that seriousness is going to matter. Jupiter is always serious. Um, and uh, he has... And, um, it's in that sense, well, let me just say this, that, that for the characters now, let's not say for the, because there's a particular thing that I want to say. For the characters, um, the, um, for the Greeks in Homer, the gods are, um, are entities that they have to deal with, not quite rational entities that they have to deal with, um, sometimes clownish. Of course they worship them, and of course they make sacrifices to them, but it's not that they feel, oh, the gods, how I love them, how, how I long to make sacrifices to them. It's, you don't make sacrifices to the gods, they're going to come down on you. Um, it's part of the rules. Um, you have to do it. Um, for Aeneas, his piety, which is, which is the big thing for him, is that his piety is a public virtue rather than a private one. And the difference between public and private virtues goes back to Aristotle. So I'll just say this very quickly because it's going to matter in Paradise Lost also. Um, public virtues are, you know, when you hear that a senator whom you like has decided that um, he's working too hard and not spending enough time with his family, um, and if, if he means it, that is not a senator who's in trouble and who's using that as an excuse, but if he means it, um, there's a conflict between public and private virtue. That is, the public virtue is you should be making the country a better place. The private virtue is you should be spending time with your kids before they grow up. Um, and um, in general, we tend to feel that public virtues should outweigh private ones um, because they affect more people. 
Um, however, in our own lives, we don't necessarily feel that way. Ian e. Forster very famously said that um, if he were given the choice between betraying his country or betraying a friend, he would hope that he would have the guts to betray his country and not his friend. Um, that is, he's putting friendship, which is a private virtue, above the public virtue of patriotism. Um, people are brought to these kinds of difficult choices all the time between um, doing what's doing something for the public good and doing something for the private good. If you know that the president has Alzheimer's, for example, but you're loyal to him, do you report this or do you try to keep it secret? It depends what kind of person you are. If you try to keep it secret and it gets out that you did that, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, a lot of public trouble. On the other hand, you may feel that it's the noble thing to do. In Homer, there is almost no um, uh, conflict between public and private virtues. Um, Achilles, in refusing to help the Achaeans, seems to be putting his own private interests above public good. But the public good itself is private revenge made public. That is, the attack on Troy is coming because Agamemnon has a pri I mean, because um, Menelaus has a private bone to pick with the Trojans. So for Achilles to say, you're doing to me what um, Paris did to your brother um, is not opposing public and private. It's opposing two different um, private demands in the sense of, of private right. For Aeneas, the issue is public versus private. That's an issue, remember, that comes up in the Mino, the question of virtue. Is it public virtue or private virtue? But it really comes up in Aristotle, who will, who will give you a list of public virtues and a list of private virtues. Once you get the conflict, and you will see this conflict, um, which we can say very simply is a conflict between love and friendship on one side and doing the right thing thing um, as far as the whole world goes on the other side. Um, once you see that conflict become a real conflict, um, you'll see it in the Aeneid, we've seen it in the Aeneid, where it's Dido versus the founding of Rome. Um, that's the conflict that Aeneas um, experiences. Um, the, um, in Dante, where Dante's, um, Dante meets friends of his in hell. And um, if you meet someone in hell, that means they are evil. That's why they're in hell. It's because they're evil. Um, especially once, as you, those of you who don't know it yet, there's, um, there's a kind of um, outskirts of hell where the virtuous um, heathen go. That is, people who have not been saved um, by Christianity, but who nevertheless were virtuous. And they're in a place where, where um, they're not being punished, they're just not being rewarded. Um, and then you go into hell proper. And anyone in hell proper is there because they're evil. Um, that is the public um, uh, judgment of God. They are there because they're evil. That's what they're doing. And yet, Dante meets friends there. And his view of his friends is not, oh, they're evil, they deserve this. So an apt, someone who is absolutely committed 
to public virtue in a Christian um, in a Christian context is always going to agree with God's judgment about punishment. If God says someone should be in hell, then you had better not feel sorry for that person in hell. Thomas Aquinas said that one of the greatest pleasures the blessed would have in heaven, among the highest pleasures of salvation, would be the contemplation of the punishment of sinners. That is, you would look down at hell and you would see sinners being punished and you would say, yes, um, you would enjoy their punishment. Um, because you would agree that they deserved it and you would see justice being done. You know, so if you take pleasure in seeing um, someone punished who really deserves being punished, you know, if you were, if you, um, if uh, Osama bin Laden gets caught and um, tried and convicted and executed, and your view of that is, yes, that's right, I'm glad that's happening. Um, what Aquinas says is you will feel that way about everyone in hell when you're in heaven. Every single person there, you'll feel like this is a good thing, that this is happening, and it will make you happy. Dante doesn't seem to feel that way when he travels through hell. Um, he sees friends there, and he's not celebrating the fact. Some of them he's glad to see in hell, others not. His friends he's not glad to see there. So that's a conflict between a private and a public um, virtue. In Paradise Lost, this conflict becomes intense because the thing about Paradise Lost is that the best readings of Paradise Lost um, not necessarily the correct ones, I think it's actually a harder call than, than these readings say but easily the best readings of Paradise Lost are the ones that see Satan as the hero and God as the villain in Paradise Lost um, and if Satan is the hero and God is the villain then you are certainly going against the overt claims of the poem. Now, the way we'll see, as I say, we'll see this in Paradise Lost in spades. We'll see it in Dante, although Dante finally gets a reconciliation of this when we get to, to Paradise um, in the third part of the Divine Comedy. But we can already see it in the Aeneid. The conflict in the Aeneid is love, which is private, versus piety, which is Aeneas, what Aeneas owes his people and owes Rome and owes the future. Now, one um, place to go back to this question that Emily brought up about um, um, uh, will and faith and prophecy, um, one of the really interesting echoes in the Aeneid of the Odyssey is Aeneas's return from the land of the dead. Do you remember that there are two gates that he could go through? Um, what are they? Faith, yeah. Dreams you can trust versus dreams you can't trust. So um, it's, and Penelope describes this also. She has a dream and she says, well, I know about dreams. Some are true and some aren't. It depends whether... Um, they come to you, whether the dreams come out of the gate of horn, in which case they're true, or the gate of ivory, in which case they're deceptive. Um, and the problem is, I don't know which kind of dream I just had, says Penelope. So um, Virgil amazingly picks that up and says there, at the end of book six, there are two gates, a gate of ivory and a gate of horn. 
and through the gate of horn, he, he says the same thing. True dreams come, and through the gate of ivory come false, deceptive dreams. It was through the gate of ivory that Aeneas and the Sibyl now returned to earth. Through the gate of ivory, through the gate of deception. Um, and that's been a puzzle. Why? Um, you would expect Virgil to say that they would go through the gate of horn. That is, they'd just been into the underworld, and now they're coming back to our world through the gate of horn. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The introduction has a theory. Okay, yeah, explain it. Right, so a recent explanation for this. So just so you know, this is not an explanation. Um, this is a literary critical explanation that, that, um, that have, has been proposed in the last century. So it's not what Milton would have thought. It's not what Dante would have thought. Um, but it's, it's a nice one. I'm not sure I accept it, but it's a nice one. Is that the gate of horn, I mean the gate of ivory, what would it mean for a dream to be false? What Penelope seems to mean by that is um, you get prophecies and dreams, but they're not true. And um, you shouldn't trust them. Um, what it's possible Virgil means by it is you have an anxiety dream. Um, usually it's an anxiety dream, not always, but usually it's an anxiety dream. Um, and um, it may make you so anxious, we've had dreams like this, that make you so anxious that you wish in your dream that you were dreaming. And you think, God, if only this were a dream, but it isn't. That's, that's sort of the height of anxiety um, in an anxiety dream. But um, that sort of dream, something terrible, you can't believe that this terrible thing um, is going on. Um, you just can't believe it. Um, and then you wake up, and to your immense relief, it's not true. And it may take you a few seconds to realize that it's not true. You wake up and, wow, wait, it's not true. Oh, that's great. Um, and when you realize that it's not true, what you quickly go about doing is forgetting it, um, which is why it's so hard to remember, or which is why, which is, which is for, um, uh, which responds to the fact that it's very difficult to remember dreams. Um, people almost always forget um, almost everything they've dreamt within moments of waking up. Um, even if you decide you're going to remember, even if you try practicing lucid dreaming, um, you forget what you dreamt almost immediately. Now, if you had a true dream, which is we're going to see happening in Milton, that is to say, in a famous line that Keats has about the creation of Eve in Paradise Lost, what happens is um, God makes Adam fall asleep, um, and um, he takes a rib from Adam's side, nearest the heart, as Adam puts it, and forms it into Eve. This is all out of um, the J story in Genesis. Um, and um, then um, he forms Eve, and they become a couple. So the way Milton tells the story is that Adam has a dream, and he dreams that all this happens. And there is this beautiful woman. And then he says, I waked to find her or forever to deplore her loss. That is, he wakes up 
and he doesn't know whether this dream was a true dream or a false dream. So I waked in order to find her or forever to deplore her loss. He looks around, he doesn't see her, and then suddenly there she is, when out of hope, behold her, not far off. And so he goes and introduces himself to her. He's not very happy. He looks kind of not as pretty as she was hoping. Um, but he's happy, which is all that counts. Actually, it isn't in Paradise Lost, but it's an issue. Um, so he wakes up to find that the dream is true. And if it's true, then it's stable. And he doesn't forget. He remembers because there's a seamlessness from the dream world to the waking world. As you'll see, Milton has a sonnet on which this moment in Paradise Lost is based, which is a false dream. The sonnet, well, I'll just tell you since we're putting a lot of stuff together today. The sonnet is the last sonnet he ever wrote, um, and it's the sonnet whose first line is, Methought I saw my latest spousal saint. And what the sonnet is about is Milton's wife has died, um, and he's blind, and in fact he's never seen her. Um, they're married, they've had a child, um, but she's dead. She's died. And then after her death, he has a dream. And in the dream, it's not only that he dreams of her, but it's that he dreams he can see both those things. So the sonnet begins, Methought I saw my late espoused saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave. Who's Alcestis, anyone? It's been mentioned um, in the Odyssey. Um, Hercules saves Alcestis from death. From um, Alcestis dies for her husband and goes to the grave, and then Hercules says, that's really not right. And he goes down to the underworld and brings her back to life. So Milton is remembering this story, which was a play by Euripides, but it's also mentioned in the Odyssey as another descent into the underworld. Methought um, I saw my latest spouse at Saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave rescued from death by force though pale and faint. So I thought I saw my late wife. I thought I saw my late wife. I thought I saw my late wife in a dream brought back to me the way Hercules, Jove's great son, brought Alcestis back to her husband. And then he goes on, mine as one whom purification, excuse me, mine as one who washed from, from, from childbed taint, purification in the old law did save, and such as once more I hope to have full sight of her in paradise without restraint. So that's a little bit hard, but it's mine like one who, is, who has gone through a ritual bath after giving birth, gone, gone to a mikvah after giving birth, mine as one who washed from spot of childbed taint purification in the old law did save, that is according to Leviticus and um, washing in um, the ritual bath, um, and such as once more I hope to have full sight of her in paradise without restraint, so mine like this, and then the 
predicate of that sentence. My wife, mine, came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face, so he sees her, she's come to him dressed all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled, he says, and it's veiled because he doesn't know what her face looks like. So in his dream, she comes like a bride, veiled. So the fact that he doesn't know what she looks like doesn't mean that he can't dream of her visually. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, that is, I dreamt that I could see, her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, love, sweetness, goodness, in her person shined so clear as in no face with more delight. So even though her face was veiled, what I could see in her as a person was love, sweetness, goodness, shining out so clear as in no face with more delight. Um, remember the phrase, the human face divine, that we looked at at the beginning of Book 3 of Paradise Lost. So he's saying, well, I couldn't see her human face. Remember, that's what's shut out for him. He's blind like Homer. He can't see her face, and yet... He sees love, sweetness, and goodness shining from her so clearly as in no face with more delight. And then the end of the sonnet. But oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. So he dreams of her, and now she bends to embrace him. But oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked. She fled and day brought back my night. So that's the amazing last line of that sonnet. I waked, she fled, and day, it's the next morning, and day brought back my night. The night of his blindness, the night of her death, the night of her, of her absence. The Orphean moment. Remember, Orpheus turns to look at Eurydice. And that's the mistake. He tries to see what he cannot see. Um, Milton was obsessed with the Orpheus story, as you will see in Paradise Lost. Um, Orpheus comes up over and over in Milton. So Milton, we could now say, had a dream that turned out to be false. And he rewrote this dream as a true dream in Paradise Lost. When Adam awakens, and, and now to quote Keats, Keats says of the poetic imagination, the ima and he's referring to Paradise Lost, the imagination may be compared to Adam's dream. He awoke and found it truth. So that would be a dream that comes through the gate of porn. Now, what, um, this, what the introduction, um, what Bernard Knox um, suggests about why it is that Aeneas and the Sibyl return through the gate of ivory is that not that what they've seen is false, but rather that um, they don't remember it that, it, that, um, it, that it doesn't become part of their um, acquirement of true facts about the future that they return from sleep to have. Emma. Yeah, I would kind of sense that it's sort of bird. Yeah, well, that's the question. Yeah, so so there's so their view is a kind of men in black view, 
which is that um, Aeneas is told everything about the future, but then he forgets it. Um, and there's a will and fate thing there also. He knows what the future is. He knows what is fated to happen. But he still has to will it, and in order to will it, he has to forget it. Now, this question of forgetting, when you come back to this world, that's what his father has already told him in the underworld, that all these souls wait to be reborn. They line up waiting to be reborn. And when they're reborn, they forget what they've known. Wordsworth will say this in the intimations Ode that we forget um, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star hath had elsewhere in setting and cometh from afar. Um, and then he says, we don't quite forget everything right away, but we forget almost all of it at birth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the pure. I think the it's you're asking a really good question that a lot of people have um, thought really hard about, um, in some in weirder ways than others. But I think the idea is that that ivory is deceptively pure. Um, that is, yeah, it's pure, but life isn't. Um, and so ivory is um, just because it's so beautiful, it's deceptive. But horns are off the top of your head. No, had, no, devils didn't have horns for the Romans. That's a, that's a Christian idea. Um, I just want to read you what Dr. Johnson says um, about, uh, because, I, because I particularly ask you to pay attention to Ajax's silence and Dido's. So um, this is um, an essay by Dr. Johnson in the mid-18th century. Um, the essay is an essay on imitation. And here's what he has to say about Virgil and Homer. The warmest admirers of the great Mantuan poet, that is Virgil, remember that he's the Mantuan poet. That's how Dante will refer to him often. Um, he's from Mantua. The warmest admirers of the great Mantuan poet can extol him for little more than the skill with which he has, by making his hero both a traveler and a warrior, united the beauties of the Iliad and the Odyssey in one composition. Yet his judgment was perhaps sometimes overborne by his avarice of the Homeric treasures. A great idea that he was so greedy for Homer's treasures. And for fear of suffering a sparkling ornament to be lost, he has inserted it where it cannot shine with its original splendor. When Ulysses visited the infernal regions, that is Odysseus, he found among the heroes that perished at Troy his competitor Ajax, who, when the arms of Achilles were adjudged to Ulysses, died by his own hand in the madness of disappointment. He still appeared to resent, as on earth, his loss and disgrace. Ulysses endeavored to pacify him with praises and submission, but Ajax walked away without reply. This passage has always been considered as eminently beautiful, because Ajax, the haughty chief, the unlettered soldier of unshaken courage, of immovable constancy, but without the power of recommending his own virtues by eloquence or enforcing his assertions by any other argument than the sword, had no way of making his anger known but by gloomy sullenness and dumb ferocity. His hatred of a man whom he conceived to have defeated him only by volubility of tongue was therefore naturally shown by silence more contemptuous and piercing than any words that so rude an orator could have found, and by which he gave his enemy no opportunity of exerting the only power in which he was superior. When Aeneas is sent by Virgil to the shades, he meets Dido, the queen of Carthage, whom his perfidy had hurried to the grave. 
He accosts her with tenderness and excuses, but the lady turns away like Ajax in mute disdain. She turns away like Ajax, but she resembles him in none of those qualities which give either dignity or propriety to silence. She might, without any departure from the tenor of her conduct, have burst out like other injured women into clamor, reproach, and denunciation. But Virgil had his imagination full of Ajax, and therefore could not prevail on himself to teach Dido any other mode of resentment. If Virgil could be thus seduced by imitation, there will be little hope that common wits should escape. So that's Johnson's view of Dido's silence. Um, I think it's worth considering whose silence strikes you as more powerful, Dido's or Ajax's. Um, all right, read. There's lots of Dante we're going to be reading in the next um, three weeks. Uh, so read. Uh, you should read the first 17 cantos of the Inferno for Friday. And write your papers. You know, it's all very easy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>